Coming up next, Never Gonna Let You Go. That's not the lyric, I know. Hey everybody, it's the bookening. That's pretty timely reference, isn't it? The Rickroll phenomenon. You know, I think it's coming back around, number one. That'd be my defense. I've been Rickrolled. I think it already came back around. Yeah, it's well, it's probably I think you're late on the on the on the return of the Rickroll. Well, I'm my own man, Jake. The ironic distance Rickroll happened. I am ironically distancing the ironic distance Rickroll. That's how sophisticated of a hipster I am. You're the 1%, man. I am the 1%. I am the 1%. Occupy <laughs> Astley. Uh, pick up this the book or look at this title. ought to be occupying Alberson for being 1%. Astley. Oh, they're occup- oh, yeah. I guess the 1% don't get to occupy. No, they get occupied. Okay. Well, they can occupy me, I guess. <laughs> Every time I look at this book, Think of I, I rickroll myself. My brain rickrolls me, and I can't stand it. And I'm mad at Ishiguru. I guess it's just the fact that he's because there's there's not even that. That's not even a line from the Ashley song. The I, Ashley song is never gonna. I don't think it's Ishiguru. I just think it's you. You're rickrolling yourself. There's no. That's never happened to me with this book. Brandon, your thoughts. I think you are. Well, there you go. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we. That's a nice shape for your beard, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Just. It does look good on you. Clean lines that are low. Clean low works. lines. Yeah. I, what always happens, and our listeners, I think, need to know about this, is I get to this and then I go past it or I, if I could just sort of have it stay here. If there was like a stunting agent that I could throw on my face that would stop it from doing anything except for maybe filling in a little bit, then we'd be in good shape. You know, you can buy these little doodads. And just kind of keep it every day. Yeah, I've got a little doodad. I, I, I work on it every day, Jake. I okay, do. well, I'm just, you made it sound like you just like. I'm not taking a weed whacker to this once a month. I Okay. I'm, I'm trying. You're main, you are working to maintain this length. I'm with working. With a nice little trimmer. I've got. Okay. I was kiss, Christmas gifted two years ago a straight razor, which is super oh. fun. And so I use that to just bleed bleedingly go across my neck and i think about sweeney todd and stuff like that and that's a lot of fun but then i have a little trimmer and i use that to trim just maintain that length right there yeah it's tough it's tough i don't my wife doesn't like me to be clean shaven i don't really like to be clean shaven but then it's like i can't really grow a beard so that length with the lines it's the clean lines that really make it work the clean all right well listeners you know what he's talking about this is a visual medium. You can see me. So what do you think? Write in. Call 1-800-Nathan's-Beard. <laughs> Brandon? Yeah. What do you think about facial hair? Um, I wish I could grow it better than I can. Yeah. So I do too. I wish you could grow it better than you can. Thanks. I've tried and it usually is just pretty st- stubbly. I think it's kind of fun. I've seen yeah. you with like almost a, a mustache and yeah. I mean, I am, if nothing else, an ironist as we established at the top of the show. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's part of my enjoyment of it. But 
My wife, though, does not like the feeling of a short beard. So yeah, that's the best I can ever do. Well, we should like pay. It, you know, all prickly and yeah. stuff. I think if I could grow a full beard and have it longer, she wouldn't feel it as much. But, you know, alas, the uh, beard gods did not bless my face. <laughs> the beard, Alas, the, the beard gods did not bless your face. Yeah. Genetically, Chastines have just never really been able to grow beards. Well, you know who is My dad really... can't grow a beard. Hmm. Jake is like a high priest of the beard gods or whatever it is. However you get in with the beard gods, Jake. He has a kingly beard. He has a kingly beard. It's it's really true. Kingly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's fantastic. There's not a patch on it, folks. It's just a it's just a great full beard. Probably top ten things I'm jealous of about Jake. It'd, it'd be in there at least. I, I think. I don't know. I, I'll have to just maybe I won't. I don't think I'm going to sit down and try and think what are the top ten things I'm jealous of Jake about. But I bet it might not be healthy. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a really good. I don't relationship. think it'd be help- healthy for me to do that with you. So. Yeah. Well, it's not. Let's not. But if I was gonna, then. I really like your beard. Thanks. Um, Scrupulously maintained to please Mrs. Mensel. Scrupulously maintained to please, well, whoosh, whoosh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> as a beard you should. It, I man. mean, as facial hair. So when I was trying to grow my beard out, there were certain social things happening around the, wor- uh, around the world we live in that made me want to try and grow a beard. And my wife pointed out that my face belongs to her too. So if she doesn't like the beard, I should just shave it off. Fair point. So I did. Yeah, I'm actually not really allowed to go clean shaven. I have seen you clean shaven once. I've been clean shaven exactly one time in the, how long have I been married? 13 or 14 years? I think 14 was the last number I heard, but. That sounds probably right. Maybe 13. That would be funny if if we knew and you didn't. (laughs) I know it would be funny. I don't know how I, so 2007, so 13 plus years. When's your anniversary? May. Yeah. Of 2007, so, so 13 yeah. plus years. Yeah, exactly one time. And yeah, you were around. For that. I was around, yeah. I remember it. If my wife tries to tell me what to do with my beard, I just tell her to get back in the kitchen where she belongs. Why is, right. she, why is she looking? Why is she making eye contact, first of all? And Fair point. Like, just go back to your muffins, lady. That's what I call her, and that's what I say. Speaking of ladies, the book that we're reading is narrated by one, and that book is Never Let Me Go. It Man. is. Speaking of transitions, uh, we weren't really speaking about transitions. I'm just going to leave and run some errands, guys. Yeah, Jake's, Jake's, Jake's running some errands. Oh, no. Brandon, are you going to be able to do context without him? I am. <laughs> well, folks, we're, we're, we're talking about Never Let Me Go, the, I'm going to call it classic novel, the, the new classic novel. Uh, it's only less than 20 years old, right? I mean, yeah. But it appears on the list, many lists of the great novels. Of the last decade, the last century. So Ishiguro, one of my favorite writers. In fact, he inspired me to start pursuing my, getting my dissertation done again. I guess we should say that here at the top. Yeah, he's pretty great. We read him. This was, yeah, it was, we were, when, when, did, when did we do Remains of the Day? Was that a few years ago? Remains of the Day, you know, Brandon, I'll just tell you exactly because it'll be kind of vaguely interesting for us to know. Remains of the Day, bookening. Let's see if I put that into Google. That was episode 86. So yeah. That was a while. Actually, that was part two. Uh, that was episode 87. Nope, that was the movie. That was episode 85. We weren't even 100 ba- in back then. That was in 2018. So yeah, so a couple years ago now. April 2018, yeah. About two and a half years ago. Yeah, so really inspired me to start. I read all his stuff. So we, I had read Remains of the Day before in a, a wonderful class on postmodernism with Dr. Samantrai who actually may end up being my new chair. So we'll see. Anyways, so 
this really renewed my love of literature, love of a lot of things too, love of writing, because he's he's an inspirational writer and his process makes you realize that if you love literature and you love to write, it's you know, it's doable, it's within your grasp. He really is an inspirational writer. I'd, I'd say Max Lucado, uh, yeah. Chicken Soup for the Soul, if people yeah. remember those. And yeah. uh, <laughs> Ishiguro. <laughs> Brandon is so <laughs> Brandon is making mean faces at me. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so Ishiguro. Well, there we go. We already got Brandon's baggage out of the way. Brandon just decided to give his baggage. I did. And I had I don't think I'd no, I had never read um Ishiguro before that point. Before that class. Mm-hmm. But Red Remains of the Day. I may have seen the movie before then. Actually, it's so vague. I don't remember anymore. Well, as we stated, or as I stated at least in our movie review, it's not a very good movie, I don't think. Or at least it does not capture anything close to the nuances of the book and what's going on inside the butler's head. Yep. Anyway, Brandon, of course, as you know, folks, is the contextual Texan, and that means he's going to provide some much-needed context on this work. Never Let Me Go, the bookening's second novel by Ishiguro. Like you were saying, Brandon, this book appears in, I don't think I've seen a list of the great 21st century novels that does not include this book in its top 10, if not its number one slot or somewhere very close to the top. Yeah. People love this book. Speaking of love, I love when you give context. So yeah, take it away. Let's do this. So really his biography is fairly simple. He's still alive. Um, He won the Nobel Prize fairly recently, actually. The Nobel Prize recently has been kind of a a strange creature when it comes to literature. Um, They didn't even award it last year. Isn't that the year they didn't even award it, I think? Because there was controversy surrounding the whole, uh, you know, it got wrapped up in the Me Too movement, stuff like that. It Mm -hmm. happened. He won it fairly recently. And it's interesting because he's kind of one of the only ones that I think deserved it who's won it recently. Right. Um, I do think that he'll go down in history as one of the great English writers. Of, the, of our time. Just as proof of that, when we did Remains of the Day, a lot of our friends, a lot of people who listened to the podcast went and they read Ishiguro too. And we had people kind of have the same experience as I did where they got wrapped up in him and started reading all of his stuff. Yeah, I would say in terms of listener feedback, Remains of the Day is probably second only to East of Eden in terms of books that people have wanted to come up to me and say, thank you for recommending this i wouldn't have read it otherwise and i'm glad you guys did it because i read it and i really loved it and like and what we didn't have with east of eden was a bunch of people saying i really want to read all of steinbeck yeah but what we did have with the Guru is people saying i actually want to read his his other novels so yeah actually somebody who's in this building right now that's right so he was born in 1954 important things to know about him so he was born in nagasaki japan and um he ended up moving to britain with his, uh, England, whatever you call it, whichever one you call it, mm-hmm. with his father who was a oceanographer. But anyways, he, he moved at the age of five to Guildford, Surrey. Figured I should bring out my British accent. Absolutely. One of the things he notes is that he's one of these authors who gets to see two cultures from the outside. He didn't really live in Japan long enough to really be Japanese. And he also moved to England at the time when he was old enough that he's not fully British either, right? Yeah. So he's five. So he still has memories of these old places. So he's, and there's one quote where he says, I grew up with a very strong image in my head of this other country, a very important other country to which I had a strong emotional tie. 
In England, I was all the time building up this picture in my head, an imaginary Japan. And I think that not really disenfranchised, but just this aspect of his life was very influential in the way that he saw the world and the way that he uh, even sees his craft. So in this one interview from the talks, this interviewer asked him, what, what do you create first, the story or the world? And he said this, I choose the setting according to the needs of the story. And in fact, this often leads me into quite difficult situations. I often have a story, but I haven't decided where it should take place and which time period it should take place. I feel like I'm location scouting, hmm. like on film, driving around the countryside, the setting, and that includes the time and where it is geographically. That is one of my main tools in telling my story. So I've become quite interested in creating this little world. And then he says, music is also very important for my kind of storytelling. In fact, Tom Waits, a Tom Waits song was pretty influential in his writing Remains of the Day. And I think we had talked about that with that. In fact, and so this just goes back then to so his childhood, he actually became a writer fairly late in life. At first, he was more interested in becoming a musician. And you can find pictures of him with a guitar and stuff. And he sent mm. like samples to record studios and things like that. But so tone and the feeling of the story he's trying to tell really matters to him, even sometimes more than where the story is set. That's the setting kind of comes to him later, which you can kind of see that in his stories. His stories sometimes take on the quality of like a fable or like a realistic fable. I guess in that sense, it has a lot in common with magical realism. Yeah. So he'll have the story that he wants to tell, the tone that he wants to set, and then finally he'll decide on where it should be told. And uh, that's interesting that that's kind of the process he takes. He wanted to be a musician early on, and it wasn't really until 1974, well, even later than that, like in the 1980s. So he was already in his mid-20s at that time when he decided he was going to be a writer. He ended up going to a creative writing workshop kind of school with Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter, who are two famous writers from England, and studied with them. And then his thesis in 1982 became A Pell View of the Hills, which was his first novel. And he really didn't become a UK citizen until 1983. But it was during this period that he discovered that he could write and that he wanted to be a writer. That's what he wanted to do. And his first two novels, his first few novels actually, were set in this imaginary Japan. And those would be Artists of the Floating World and A Pell View of the Hills. Both fantastic, fantastic books. He, and here's what he said, had to say about that. I'm not entirely like English people because I've been brought up by Japanese parents in a Japanese-speaking home. My parents felt responsible for keeping me in touch with Japanese values. And he says, I do have a distinct background. I think differently. My perspectives are slightly different. Hmm. After he had those successes, though, he would then, of course, write his most famous work, which was Remains of the Day. And that would, that would be in the late 80s, right around the same time, actually. So he was con he's a contemporary and a peer to um, Salman Rushdie. So they're writing at the exact same time. Hmm kind of the keys to his writing is these imagined worlds, especially though dealing with personal identity in a postmodern world. Like how do we know ourselves and especially our relation to our past, almost every single one of his novels and the self-awareness that we have, whether or not we have self-awareness, whether or not we can even know ourselves, right? Are they all first person? That's actually what I was about to get to. Yeah. They're all first person except for The Buried Giant. And so that's kind of the markers of an Ishiguro novel is their first person stories. And they're always exploring kind of this personal relation with ourselves. As far as postmodern writers go, I think that's why he's so fascinating as a novelist. And even as far as the postmoderns go, one of the best ones, because he takes this approach to postmodernism where he has things that, to say that are still true. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in other words, as Christians, we know that postmodernism, it can only lead to sadness and it can only lead to a complete lack of self-awareness. It can lead to nothing. 
And that's kind of at the root of all his stories, this deep sadness that comes from the way that postmoderns deal with themselves in this world. And I think that if Ishiguro has value, even for Christians, that's where it is, because they show, he shows us the truth about what it means to be alive today and to believe the things that even sadly he believes. But he has this awareness that there's an emptiness and a hollowness at the middle of everything. It's like the remains of the day at the end where he's sitting there and he's just met with, what was her name again? Do you remember? Oh, the uh, Mrs. Yeah. Miss. Something. Yeah. Names aren't coming to me today, people. Yep. Sorry. But they're sitting there and he's on the dock with her or on the pier. And then the, you have the lights that are involved. And it just shows that this guy, his whole life has thought that he's understood his sense of duty and responsibility and yet really has no full awareness of who he is. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so. It's not, and so what's also interesting about Ishiguro is that he'll write these stories, and like so, we're always looking for a moment of enlightenment where the the character completely understands us about themselves. But Ishiguro will often keep that from his characters, mm-hmm. like his characters don't get redemption, right? Right, and there's not even like a Flannery O'Connor outside redemption coming in to get them either, right? To judge them immediately in the world, the judgment is their lack of self awareness, mm-hmm. and so that's really, in a nutshell, that's what Ishiguro's stories are about. And they're really fascinating in that sense. Never Let Me Go fits into this. It was written in 2005, so pretty late in his career, and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So really what's fascinating about Ishiguro is kind of just to talk about his, his writing process. So we've already, talked about, we've already talked about kind of the way he views story. He's a noted cinephile. He loves movies. Mm. And so it makes sense that he kind of gets the script first, and then he kind of thinks about setting. Yeah. And even that process makes him very postmodern in that sense. Not not even postmodern in the sense that we think about postmodernism, but just someone who's creating with movies and the rise of music the way it is today. And that influences the way he writes novels. Right. And you, he can't escape his moment in history. So anyways, I wanted to read some stuff just that he said from, from interviews because we have the opportunity. He's alive still and he's, he gives interviews. And so the interviewer asked him, what was your starting point for Never Let Me Go? And he said, over the last 15 years, I kept writing pieces of a story about an odd group of students in the English countryside. I was never sure who these people were. I just knew they lived in wrecked farmhouses. And though they did a few typically student-like things, argued over books, worked on the occasional essay, fell in and out of love, there was no college campus or teacher anywhere in sight. I knew too that some strange fate hung over these young people, but I didn't know what. In the Remains of the Day episodes, I talked about this Guardian essay that he wrote where he talked about the way he went about writing Remains of the Day. And so what he says is that what he likes to do is he likes to try and live in these worlds that he's creating. Once he finally gets an idea of what he wants to do, he'll live in these worlds and he'll do just enough research to give him the flavor of the time he wants to write, yeah. but not so much in research that it just becomes like hard and fast history for him. Mm-hmm. So he has this fascinating process and it's, it kind of echoes what C.S. Lewis said about his writing of the Chronicles of Narnia, all these writers who we can hear their process, right? Who have told yeah. us their process and have been honest about it. Mm-hmm. That they'll get these ideas for stories and these stories will stay with them for years sometimes, right? I mean, he, was, he didn't publish Never Let Me Go until 2005, but he had ideas for it in the 90s. And so he was just trying to process what is this story? And then finally, once the setting comes to him, what he likes to do is he'll do what he calls a crash. And this is where he'll lock himself away from like 9 a.m. to 10.30 p.m., Monday through Saturday, and he'll just write the whole time. And he'll say often what he gets, what he produces is garbage, which that's one of the encouraging things Mm -hmm. about Shiguro is he doesn't try to pretend like everything he writes is magic, 
right? Like he'll write pages and pages and pages and most of it's just trash. But what'll begin to happen is the story will begin to take shape and then he'll be able to go back and edit and cut things out. And he's a good self-editor and he'll get this story that comes out of it. That's kind of the process that he does. Anyways, that's a little bit of background to what he's saying here. So I knew that some strange fate hung over these people. In my study at home, I have a lot of these short pieces, some going back as far as the early 90s. I'd wanted to write a novel about my students, but I'd never got any further. I'd always ended up writing some other quite different novel. Then around four years ago, I heard a discussion on the radio about advances in biotechnology. I usually tune out when scientific discussions come on, but this time I listened, and the framework around these students of mine finally fell in place. I could see a way of writing a story that was simple but very fundamental about the sadness of the human condition. So mm-hmm. right there, he even he knows what he's he knows what he's writing about. By the way, I don't usually do this, but usually we just assume spoilers, and we're going to assume spoilers today as well. But if you by any chance don't know what this novel's about, and you're listening, you might, and you're interested in reading the novel, you might read it before you listen to the rest of our discussion. It's kind of fun to have the story unfold for you on, in this in this particular case but we're going to talk about it i don't make any promises about spoilers here i just yeah we probably will end up spoiling some of it yeah and so this kind of segues into the what i want to do a little bit with context anyways this next question this interviewer asks him the novel is set in a recognizable england of the late 20th century yet it contains a key dystopian almost sci-fi dimension you'd normally expect to find in stories set in the future such as brave new world um and she asks were you at any point tempted to set it in the future And so just to take a step back and kind of just, again, give you a flavor of what he has done with his career, this idea where he has like these kernels of a story in his head that he wants to write has led him to write all sorts of stories. So he wrote his two earliest novels, which were set in England, but dealt with kind of Japanese experience. And even the the one, the the artist of the painted world. Artist of the floating world? Artist of the floating world. Thank you. Sorry. I was getting it mixed up with the other story. A pale view of the hills. I don't know where painting came from. The artist of the floating world. That's actually, that is set in Japan. But he also, will. he then wrote The Unconsoled, which is about a kind of a Kafkaesque story about a pianist trying to find where he's going to perform a concert in this city that both knows why he's, why he's there, but can never really give him the full picture of things. Hmm. And so that's, that's like his most postmodern story. And then he had Remains of the Day, which is set back in World War II. And then you have Never Let Me Go, which is set, it's a contemporary novel, but it also has this kind of dystopian sci-fi flavor to it. Then he has The Buried Giant, which is a very Arthurian story. And so people get us up to, how much is it? 1500. 1500, get us up to 1500 on Patreon, and I bet you'll get to hear another Ishiguro. Yeah, absolutely. you will, and actually just a couple hundred bucks away, so. Yeah, and so, but that's kind of the, that's what he does, is he takes these stories and then He'll find a setting that's appropriate to it, and then he'll do enough research to be able to write the story on, in his own terms, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. I, I like him for that. I don't know your thoughts on it. Oh, I love it. I, I think it takes a special sort of talent to do that because what he does is he fills things in with such rich, vivid detail that you actually assume he did a lot of research. Like yeah. I remember there's this whole thing. I don't remember what the conceit is called, but there's this whole conceit that he just made up for Remains of the Day, which is like, the butler's registry yeah. or something like that. And it seems so specific and so... Yeah, that piece, book, right? Yeah, the book. And he just made it up. Yeah. Which so, in another author's hands would just feel like such a phony cheat. Yeah. But he does it with such care and tenderness and 
he has just the right way. It's like the song that he made up, you know, this, this cassette tape. You look it up. I mean, I, I assume a lot of people like me, when they got done reading this book, wanted to listen to the song. And yep. the song, spoiler alert, doesn't exist. Yep. So. And he's a master at that. So what he yeah. does is he, so he read a lot of books on butlers. He read a lot of books on World War II, but still he didn't let that like, he didn't want it to be so historically real that he was then bound to just use historical mm-hmm. documents. So he made up things that suited his story that could have existed during that time. He's able to ground his flights of fancy in enough real, well-observed detail that it feels as if he'd researched it, as if he yeah. just found this thing. Which I think is the way that, as wonderful as Salman Rushdie is, I do think this is why Ishiguro in the end is better than him. Because Rushdie, you always get the sense that you can always tell when Rushdie's just making things up, right? Yes. And he does have a lot of historical details in there, but he's also making just up all this sort of stuff. And there's a Dickensian quality to it that's really fun and stuff. But Ishiguro is just, he's the more mature artist. I think so. Well, and Rushdie's always doing something that I am hit and miss on with postmodernists, which is at the end of the day, you're not sure whether Rushdie actually knew what was real or not in his story. With Ishiguro, as much as it plays with ambiguities, at least in the two books that I've read, as much as he likes to play with these postmodern ambiguities, you always get the idea that there is a concrete reality. There is a story. And then if you just had a God's eye view, you could see it, even though you're not getting that view, it exists. Yeah. And one of the other things I love about Ishiguro, to go back to his... Rushdie is a really good comparison. Point. Yeah. So what you said about Rushdie doesn't know where the real versus the fictional kind of ends. And you're not really meant to know yourself at the end yeah, of the Yeah, and you're not book. meant to know, but also there's a lack of earnestness to Rushdie mm-hmm. that Ishiguro, even if all these things don't matter, it's because they're serving some essential thing he wants to communicate to you. Yes. Right. With Rushdie, it's just the fun of the story, which is valuable in itself. And that's kind of the essence of every Rushdie story. So there's that one that about the, oh, what was it? My brain is not working today. But the one about the t- father telling the story. Harun and the yeah, Sea of Stories. Thank you. Which is fan- which is really good idea. It's, it's, it's elaborate and the story's fun. But in the end, when you get through with Rushdie, you don't, other than the game that was played, you don't necessarily feel like there was a whole lot that was said to you. Right. Does that, is that fair? Yeah. But with Ishiguro, on the other hand, you get the sense that there's some something that he wants to tell you. And actually a, a friend of ours, I, I don't, he probably wouldn't mind me saying his name, Jody mm-hmm. from My Soul Among Lions. He said he's read uh, multiple Ishiguro novels now. And he said to me, he loves Ishiguro, but it always seems like he wants to tell the same story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fair point with Ishiguro. I, I do think that he's kind of driven to say the same thing. And, but if you think about it, a lot of the great writers from the past are kind of doing the same thing right? if if there's anything about tolstoy it always seems like he's wanting to tell you the same thing right he tells you different stories that surround it but there's like one thing tolstoy wants to communicate to you in a sense so does jane austen right yeah absolutely and so now maybe ishiguro doesn't do it quite as artfully as them i think that's up to debate but maybe where ishiguro is a little different than some of the authors you might know is that he tends to evoke a similar tone. Exactly. And I think that's what Jody was saying. And so there's like a variation on a theme with him, mm-hmm. right? So either you really like what he's trying to say, or it might get tedious. And that's a fair enough criticism of him. I don't know that I'd want to read all of his novels in one shot. He's enough of a specific flavor, a wonderful flavor, but enough of a specific flavor that I'd want him to be part of a, a more well-balanced literary diet. Yeah. And so, yeah, and that's fair enough. And that's kind of, 
I think what will keep him from ever, in my opinion, rising to the level of some of the greatest masters, mm-hmm. but still he's, he's wonderful. And so anyway, so all that's a little bit of background, read his response. He said, I was never tempted to set this story in the future. That's partly a personal thing. I'm not very turned on by futuristic landscapes. Besides, I don't have the energy to think about what cars or shops or cup holders would look like in a future civilization. Right. And I don't want to write anything that could be mistaken for a prophecy. I wanted rather to write a story in which every reader might find an echo of his or her own life. I wanted to paint in England with a kind of stark, chilly beauty I associate with certain remote rural areas and half-forgotten seaside towns. Fair enough. Yes, you could say there's a dystopian or sci-fi dimension, but I think of it more as an alternate history conceit. It's more in the line of what if Hitler had won or what if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated. The novel offers a version of Britain that might have existed by the late 20th century if just one or two things had gone differently on the scientific front. Which is fair enough. It definitely has that flavor. Yeah. So one last thing I wanted to read about from this uh, interview is, so there's one last thing that really makes him postmodern in the sense that, for example, we did Beckett earlier this year. We also did, um, I can't ever remember the name of it. It's not really postmodern, but it's close enough. W. Somerset Mago. Oh, uh, Moon and Sixpence. Moon and Sixpence. All these novels are interested in memory. And the way that we remember our past and then we tell stories about ourselves to ourselves. That's kind of one of the big postmodern conceits. If anybody ever tells you like, this is what postmodern literature is, that's one of the things they're going to say is it's about characters who try to remember their own past and then try to tell themselves stories about their past, whether or not they're true stories so that they can make sense of who they are today. And often those things are lies, right? right? And so that's, that really is at the heart of what happens with the remains of the day, right? He's telling himself lies about himself so that he can cope with what he's allowed to happen, right? Or mm-hmm. what has happened around him and he's done nothing about. That's in a heartbreaking way what this novel's about. Too. Absolutely. And once you've read it and you think about what, uh, so just like a short aside, like the fact that he chose to call this novel Never Let Me Go, right? It's just, it's really sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it almost makes you cry just thinking about yeah. the way this novel ends. Yeah, yeah. So he said, I've always, I've always liked the texture of memory. I like it that a scene pulled from the narrator's memory is blurred at the edges, layered with all sorts of emotions and open to manipulation. You're not just telling the reader this and this happened. You're also raising questions like, why has she remembered this event just at this point? How does she feel about it? And when she says she can't remember very precisely what happened, but she'll tell us anyway, well, how much do we trust her? And so on. I love all these subtle things you can do when you tell a story through someone's memories. And so by telling stories in the first person... Ishiguro's found a way for himself to participate in the unreliable narrator history without trying to trick you. Mm-hmm. In other words, the reader's in on the game, right? You know from the beginning that you can't completely trust the narrators that's in an Ishiguro story. And that's part of what he's doing. That's part of the story that's being told to you is you're watching this character, unlike David Copperfield, right? You're supposed to trust everything David Copperfield says pretty much. Right. Here, you know from the beginning that you're not really supposed to trust this narrator. Instead, this they're telling you the story is telling you just as much about the character as it is about the story, mm-hmm. right? So that the narration itself becomes a part of the story, right? which is fun yeah, and really deaf the way he does it. Absolutely. So then he, the last thing he says here is, I should say, I think the role played by memory and never let me go is rather different to what you find in some of my other earlier books and say the remains of the day memory was something to be searched through very warily for those crucial wrong turns for those sources of regret and remorse. But in this book, Kathy's memories are more benevolent. They're principally a source of consolation. As her time runs out, as her world empties one by one of the things she holds dear, what she clings to are her memories of them. Memory is very essential to his stories and to his work. 
And so we'll get to in just a minute, I'll talk a bit about dystopian literature. Mm -hmm. I think you can't really get through this without talking about the way it fits itself into the dystopian history. Yeah. So I think that the last thing I wanted to read about Ishiguro is just one of the things that he said in his interview for the Nobel Prize, because I think that this helps you understand what he's trying to do with his works. Mm -hmm. The interviewer says, I suppose that what you've been writing about all this time in a way is that question of our place in the world, our connection to each other, our connection with the world. This is perhaps the theme you explore the most, do you think? Leading question. And he says, yes, I would say so. I mean, I think if I could put it a little bit more narrowly than that, I mean, it's probably one of the things that's interested me always is how we live in small worlds and big worlds at the same time that we have a personal arena in which we have to try and find fulfillment in love. But that inevitably intersects with a larger world where politics or even dystopian universes can prevail. So I think I've always been interested in that. We live in small worlds and big worlds at the same time, and we can't, you know, forget one or the other. And so that's what he sees at the heart of his literature, is the way that we have these, and that's what literature does in general, is it gives you Pierre, but Pierre within the world of the Napoleon uprisings and all that that's happening. Right. In this case, these people who are wrapped up in this dystopian universe that they don't fully know anything about, but as the story unravels, we find out what's happening to them. And yet, one of the things that people will say when they talk about literature is it shows us like the human predicament or what it means to be human. And that's at the heart of literature because think about it. I mean, we're all still living our lives at home, the relationships with friends, with our children, with our wives, all these things. And they're all intensely personal, and yet we're all wrapped up together in this quarantine that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And everything that's happening with that, and then the other social movements that are wrapped around it. And so we live our lives, but we all intersect in these ways that are very social too, that affect our lives as well. And so what literature like this does is it helps you be aware of just how wonderful it is to have your own personal experiences, but also not to forget that there are others out there who are having their own stories. It's, I've talked about it before. It's that thing where you're driving down the road and you pass by a, a farmhouse and you, and you realize, well, and maybe you see a little graveyard outside or something. In my work, I drive a lot. And you say, well, there's a whole family there. They've had histories that stretch back to like the 1800s with this farm. Think about all the stories that are there. Nobody will ever know them. Nobody yep. wrote a novel about them. But there's still, it's, there's this depth. It helps you not become a solipsist and a narcissist. And I think that's in the end, what's so wonderful about Ishiguro is as we saw with Beckett, postmodernism, and a lot of, even with, uh, for example, I think Rushti, to an extent you can't, he's all about the storyteller, which always comes back to him, Rushti. Mm-hmm. And so this is actually, as I've been thinking about my dissertation, one of the things I've been trying to think about is like the question of the author within this world. What I love about Ishiguro is that his answer to this sort of solipsistic, narcissistic, impulsive postmodernism is he draws us back to realize that we have our stories, but so does everyone else, right. right? And that's kind of his inoculation against the deep narcissism of postmodernism, is to make you sympathize with others. And so, anyways, that's one of the reasons I like him quite a bit. Yeah, me too. So, this is a dystopian book, and we've taught, have we, we've done dystopian literature before on the book, and have Well, we? we did Fahrenheit 451, so I guess that fits the bill. I don't remember how much we actually talked about the genre. Yeah, or subgenre, whatever you want to call it. Well, dystopian literature, as we see it now, it's a take on utopian literature. Earliest instance of that would probably be Thomas More's Utopia. But um, it's always about, typically in the future, and it's about a society that's frightening, terrifying, and it's usually because the government has done something. Mm-hmm. Right? The government has some sort of power over us. And so 
this has deep roots, but probably so it goes back as far as the 1900s with H.G. Wells. But really, surprise, surprise, you see the rise of dystopian literature right around the time of World War II, in between World War I and World War II, as mm-hmm. you had the rise of really dystopian states. And so people were thinking and imagining, well, if these countries continue to exist, what will the world be like? And so you have in 1930s, Brave New World with Aldous Huxley, mm-hmm. which we may be doing soon, sometime in the future. Yeah, we've talked about it. Who knows? One that we are, are doing later this year, 1984. Yep. By George Orwell. And you had in 1945, Animal Farm, his other novel. And then 1949, you had 1984. And so these are all right at the time of World War II. Interestingly enough, guess what else was published in 1945, which is a dystopian piece that I did not talk about dystopian context for because I didn't do the context. Uh, 1945, who did the context? Someone outside of us. Oh, of course, uh, that hideous strength. That hideous strength, that's right. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting just to see the way that these fit into history. So it's right in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you get 1940, uh, you get Fahrenheit 451 in 1953, and those are like the those are the four big ones. Well, those are the three big ones, mm-hmm. but for Christians, you add in the hideous strength. Sure. You get Brave New World, you get Animal Farm, and you get Fahrenheit 451. Those are the dystopian novels that we think of today. These would all kind of have a, a, a some, these actually not really are much of a crossover with sci-fi in the sense that I don't think any of these writers would see themselves as sci-fi writers, except for maybe Bradbury later in his life. Yeah, I mean, as far as those novels go, I'd say, uh, what's a, which one? Brave New World actually has the most science conceits with their, their cloning technique yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But but even then, I don't know if Aldous Huxley would have wanted to see himself as a sci-fi writer. No, well, especially Orwell, you know, we're doing eight, eight, 1984 later this year. I don't even know why people call that a sci-fi novel. All that is is a novel where he describes a totalitarian state. That's it. Yeah, but if we're using Ishiguro's way of looking at the world to kind of help us understand why these things happened in the first place, if like the author's and personal experience also gets wrapped up with social things that are happening, no surprise that like with the progressive sciences and stuff, you get H.G. Wells, Mm -hmm. who was like a champion of science for the most part. And so then you get the rise of sci-fi, and then we've talked about it before, you get the little periodicals and stuff that come out, the magazines that do the pulp sci-fi. And th- when do those come about? In the uh, late 1800s, and then especially flourished in the early 20th century into the 1920s and 30s. So yeah, I don't really think that you would get dystopian literature as we know it today had those not happened, mm-hmm. right? Had sci-fi not become something. And so then you get these authors who want to be more serious writers. They take the sci-fi and they put it to their use for trying to say same, something about culture. Right. And that's the birth of the dystopian novel. Mm-hmm. So you get this intersection of really rough turmoil in society. And then you get the sci-fi crossover. You get these authors who want to say something. I'm going to mute my phone. <laughs> it was just telling me that the uh, International Space Station is flying over. Oh, right? cool. Yeah. If anybody wants to go out and look in the sky. Anyways. Yeah. And so that's why you have the rise of these things. As far as other dystopian literature goes, well, really cinema kind of takes over. You get Planet of the Apes, things like that that happened mm-hmm. in the 60s. And you get kind of the cheesy versions of dystopian literature that happened there it became as early as metropolis which came out fritz lang's uh, german expressionist film metropolis which came out in the 1910s if i'm not mistaken it became a conversation between cinema and literature and really a whole visual language you know the big art deco spires into turned into the blade runner dystopian kind of uh 
you could the people call it dystopian chic chic you know like the 1984 look like you can watch a movie and you can just know oh this is kind of a 1984 look you know it's it's got the big talking face v for vendetta yeah the stupid movie that i liked growing up equilibrium yeah uh where emotions are outlawed and Kristen Bale has to shoot people. The Matrix. The Matrix, obviously. Yeah. yeah. There's just a whole style, an artistic style, a design style. A lot of times in cinema, it's linked for whatever reason. I mean, I'm sure we could figure it out if we wanted to take five minutes, but linked to film noir, to detectives and shadowy buildings, to corporate intrigue, to, yeah. you know, I mean, Blade Runner is probably the, yeah. the, the archetypical one of our generation or of the last 50 years and these are always yeah they have that noir-esque feel to them and they always are dystopian literature cannot escape being somewhat political mm -hmm. because Absolutely. that's the whole point of it it has to be something that these people are fighting against or something that's controlling them right? mm -hmm. and that's always the government and obviously that has huge intersections for us today right i mean i'm i'm, I'm sure that because of what's going on now eventually another dystopian novel will be written based on this but you sometimes they can be more literary. So another example would be The Road. That's mm -hmm. definitely a, one of the more recent dystopian pieces. Well, the way that I would distinguish it is this. We talked, people can listen. I think it'll be out by now. We did a series over on Sound of Sanity on fantasy literature. And we talked about fantasy literature as being part of a larger genre of, or species of literature, which is speculative fiction. Fiction that speculates. Fiction that asks a question. What if? I guess every story asks what if, but some stories are just like, what if things that we are, the, all the components that we already have in place have, you know, what if Pierre did this? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what if one thing was different? What if people could fly? What if the government was different? What if there were dragons? That's, you know, fantasy literature, horror literature, sci-fi, these are all species of speculative fiction. And I would say you can roughly divide up authors into two camps. There are those who begin with the what if, and those who are, there are those who begin with something else and the people that begin with the what if are generally the nerdy sci-fi people that if you don't like sci-fi you haven't heard of or maybe you know some names like arthur clark philip k dick they're not known for their style they're not known for their characters they're not known for their intriguing action or what they're known for are coming up with these intriguing ideas and then just following those ideas like star trek yeah wherever they lead like yeah. star trek's a pretty good example actually star trek ultimately as much as people love captain kirk and captain picard and these characters those stories at least in the first couple series of star trek they're not really ultimately about the characters they're about going somewhere and asking what if this what if we had to violate the prime directive what if there yep. were clones ishiguru the, actually the or go ahead the uh, outlier to that would be Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine was the break with that, and a lot of people don't like it for that reason. Yeah. It's it's some of the best Star Trek for people who want a good story. Yeah, but for people who are actually just interested in sci-fi, the Deep Space Nine is kind of like, well, we did it once and it was good, but did yeah. did all Star Trek then have to turn into an action war story about? characters and stuff like actually we just want captain picard to go to a new planet and have a new sci-fi conceit a new yeah. what if that he has to think through and old star trek you know it's kind of lost it now but it was it was thoughtful you know like well, what if there was what if we had to displace this people group so that we could you know it was always involved yeah. with political things and um so ishiguru i would put i think anybody with sense would well let me let me put that in the most uh, condescending way possible he's not ultimately 
a speculative fiction writer. He did not start with what if. He yeah. started with a tone. He started with, I mean, we, we know exactly how he started because he told us and Brandon's recounted it for us, but he wanted to write a story about these characters and he found the sci-fi conceit that would yeah. work. And it's an old, hoary old sci-fi conceit. Like, all right, spoilers, clones. All your nerdy sci-fi writers have told this same story with these same questions asked and answered a million times. There's nothing, yeah. you know, I don't think any sci-fi nerd is going to go f- go to this book and feast on the... In fact, they wouldn't. Yeah. And we've talked to friends who really like sci-fi who then read this one and they're like, it's a good novel, but it's not really good sci-fi. Yeah. And it's, it's not. I mean, Ishiguro doesn't care about telling you exactly how this society works, how they keep yep. these people in check. I mean, there are answers kind of. But they're her- always in the background. They're like on the edges. Right. Which actually is what I love about it. Yeah, exactly. And it's a good parallel then to the road because the road does the same thing. It doesn't explain anything to you. Right. You just get hints and suggestions. And the world works because of that. And it doesn't get silly because of it, but also. Well, and the road, both stories, you could see, like the road could be set in war-torn Bosnia And it would basically work. You know, you might have to switch around the cannibals and stuff. But basically, you could tell that same story in any number of ways. Same thing for Never Let Me Go. You could tell a story where a bunch of people are going to die young in order to serve society and find a different conceit for it. And it would be just fine. And that's all Ishiguro really cares about. He doesn't care about the sci-fi of it all, which is fine. But you just have to... Again, we talked about this on our Sound of Sanity episode about fantasy, which you can go and listen to. You have to know what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, like Brandon, I don't think likes fantasy or sci-fi that much. I don't. And so... And I will let ever. I mean, like we're in the middle of reading Dune right now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fine, but it hasn't really gripped me yet, you know? Yeah. Well, and a lot of people who are just like, I want to see what the ecological systems of the planet yeah. Arrakis, like... People really care about that stuff. And I know, and, I, and I'm and i actually, I'm, I'm enjoying it enough that nobody needs to worry. I'm, it's not going to be another whatever that was. I think there'll be a decent amount of positive energy on Ready table. Player One. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be Ready Player One. It's not going to be a wrinkle in time. Nobody needs to worry about that. Brandon's come far enough along to realize that not everything has to be for him. Please, Brandon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so. <laughs> Your honor. But what I love about this novel in particular is what you were saying. It takes this idea, this conceit, but it still makes it about the characters more than anything else about the regret, the sorrow that this causes them because they have to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Because they live in this world. And so that's really what interests Ishiguro more than the questions of the society that's around it is. Which means that in the end, I think that he gets a lot out of this, that if it was just about the society, it would be clunky and weird, like in the like Fahrenheit 451, right? A lot of what we didn't like about that book, even though we th- it's fine. Right. A lot of the problems of that book comes with the way that he tries to deal with this social question, right? This problem, this government. And Ishiguro, in not really dealing with that, I think comes out with a pretty potent criticism of us well bradbury is actually a really good counterpoint because what bradbury is doing is he is actually starting with that what if and he's building a universe and the universe is silly and the characters are silly except for as as an evocation as an answer to that what if you know they work as a fable answering one question which is what if there was a world that burned books yeah but they don't really work as like you know, you don't care that much about Mon- learning about Montag and his wife. And yeah. I guess the fire chief guy is kind of interesting. But the 
the depth of the character story. It doesn't really go anywhere. No, it's all in service of a simple fable and it's fine on that level. If you're looking for something else, you won't get it and you have to be okay with that. And Jake's back now. And I think despite Ishiguro, he ended up, he did end up, and we'll probably talk a lot more about this as we talk about the novel. He didn't end up writing a fairly powerful book on what we are like today and what our society has brought us to and what we allow mm-hmm. to happen. Right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so. But no biomedical person in the field is going to be like, well, I've decided what I need to do about cloning now. Like, yeah. that's not what he's interested in. Not really. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's where he fits. That's kind of his take on dystopian literature is he, he uses it as a nice backdrop, but really in the end, that's not really what interests him the most. And so I think that's helpful. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. The only other novel on this list that I'm seeing here that would probably be worth mentioning just because you guys have talked about it is apparently The Handsmaid's Tale in mm-hmm. 1985 fits into the dystopian yep. scheme as well. And that's where someone said, you know, what if this thing patriarchy really took off and became big government? Mm-hmm. And so... And with the Me Too movement and all that, you see why that has kind of had a resurgence in the last, because nobody had really even cared about the hands made to tell for like 20 years or even 30 years. And then Harvey Weinstein and then everybody cares. (laughs) So, well, it can kind of show you. So in that case, these what if questions, like these little sci-fi, the novels that just are the what ifs, if they're not really, really interesting what ifs, if they're like just boring, they've, people have done this before what ifs. They can be forgotten until society kind of makes it where they become relevant again. Right. Right. So. Well, it, what is nice is we have all these tropes. Or it's out. convenient to pretend like it's relevant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah politically yeah. expedient to pretend <laughs> like it's relevant. That's yes. That's that's the best way to say it. But what I think both Cormac McCarthy with The Road and Ishiguro with this novel, what they both have done that's nice. And I think you should do. It's what Shakespeare did with all the tropes that he used to write his stories is they're like, well, we've got all these tropes. We've got all these ideas just like hanging out and a bunch of hacks that don't actually care about characters and plot and atmosphere and stuff have done them. I'm just going to assert the right to take it and make it literature. Like there's no reason that I should be scared to tell a clone story. Yeah. Like I can, I I can just grab the hoariest old, I mean, clone stories have been around, you know, brave new world is one. What is that? 1930. Yeah. We've got a hundred years of this exact plot. This plot is really just nothing. But I think that in the, when all is said and done, you know, Brave New World will be remembered for being one of the first dystopian literate books. It's not going to be remembered for being but a great novel. But when it's compared to Never Let Me Go, it will not be remembered as being the greater novel. No. Right? Ishiguro will be remembered for having written the greater novel because he does the things that all the great writers we've read, Austin, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, all these guys do, which is... They tell the story, but really, in the end, it's about they make these characters live. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, if you want to make some space style. for Brave New World, you could say which one's going to be remembered as better sci-fi. Well, sure, of course, Brave New World. Yeah. It has a fully thought-out world. So do lots of things yeah. that don't hold up to Brandon's standards for what makes a great. Just novel. like in the end, you know, what might be considered the greatest work of historical fiction. Like if you're just thinking about what has historical fiction become today. Mm-hmm. It probably wouldn't be War and Peace, but still, it's the better novel. It is the better novel. So, And the better people are the people that support us on patreon.com forward slash the bookening. And I say we shout out the people 
Let's shout out the people. Are worthy of a shout out. Yeah. Man, I made it sound like there's a real hierarchy there. I love everyone. We love everyone. We understand not everyone can support the bookening. But today we did go through everyone who could get a shout out. And we're only going to do the top 10 that we thought were worthy of it. Right, Nathan? Are we? No. I don't think we should do that. That's a terrible idea. That's a way to lose a lot of money, Brandon. (laughs) All right. Why don't I say the person? Uh And then, Brandon, you say one word that pops into your head. And, Jake, you say one word that pops into your head. Oh, boy. We'll we'll play a little associative psychological word game. Okay. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Dracula. Frankenstein. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I've got a feeling. (laughs) The artful Anthony Dodger. Dracula. Frankenstein. You guys have uh, one-track minds. (laughs) Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Dracula. Frankenstein. The immortal Chelsea E. Dracula. Frankenstein. Little Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Dracula. Frankenstein. Which one of them is Dracula and which one of them is Frankenstein? I wonder. We won't answer. Lily of the Valley. D-R-A-C-U-L-A. Frankenstein. Dracula, that's his name. Can't can't spell Frankenstein, so. Andrew Nestor, the lovebirds. Dracula. Frankenstein. The Keith Master. Dracula. Frankenstein. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Dracula. <laughs> Frankenstein. J- John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Uh, Dracula. Can't Frank- do any other Frankenstein. Accents. Jay and Katie, who are cold enough cheese and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Dracula. Frankenstein. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Dracula. Frankenstein. Council Prime Adam. Dracula. Frankenstein. Jeremy, the dark-hooded Lord of Death. <laughs> Dracula. Frankenstein. Nathan, not me. Dracula. Frankenstein. Maya! Maya! Frankenstein. <laughs> Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith the Ladies of Justice. Frankenstein. Dracula. Dude. Dracula. Frankenstein. DJ Sammy G. Frankenstein. Dracula. Oh, okay. Betty and Dra- Frankenstein. Dracula. Dracula. Eric and Frankenstein. Catherine Dracula. John Window Breaks. Frankenstein. Lady X. <laughs> Frankenstein. Lavender's Green. Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> no Constrictor. Dracula. Frankenstein. Mary Sheep. Dracula. Frankenstein. 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 Dracula. Anthony who's cold and hates life, liberty, Dracula. and the pursuit of days. Frankenstein. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey the Texas Frankenstein. Jacob Frankenstein. Liver Tank Thomas. Dracula. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Dracula. Frankenstein. 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 Dracula. Queen Kingetta. Dracula. Return of the Jedediah. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Timothy the Writer at Dawn. Eric and Kate the Camp Jam. Kings for a warm and love bees. Maddie, 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 Maddie. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. And Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light. Dracula. Cold Steel. Frankenstein. Cody. Dracula. Jacqueline. Jackie. Frankenstein. The Librarian Barbarian. Frankenstein. John Bobadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his Frankenstein. mate. Frankenstein. Saxophone Alex. Frankenstein. Dracula. Eli the Scarlet Pilgrim. Frankenstein. Dracula. Thanks. Booking today, uh, produced by me, executive produced by Jake. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. And hey, leave us a nice review. We could always use another review at, uh, you know, wherever you listen to your podcasts, iTunes, whatever. Yep. Leave us a nice review. In fact, we'll do our classic thing and tell you what to say. Will we? Yep. You are Frankenstein. Now, you Frankenstein. Go Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> 
You are Frankenstein. Now you Frankenstein. Go Dracula. <laughs> and listen to this podcast. It's great. The hosts are charming. And you'll learn a lot about literature. <laughs> hey, that's the show. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>